Have you ever wanted to chat with a CIA analyst about how to spot propaganda campaigns or maybe learn what it is like to be a real-life private investigator? I want you to check out Jordan Harbinger's podcast. He has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-been-heard-before stories and thought-provoking insights. Check out Jordan's conversations with Thomas Erickson about how to protect yourself from psychopaths or his chat with Renee DiResta on dismantling the disinformation machine without fail. He pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with a noble cause to make you a more informed, critical thinker to better operate in today's world. There is so much here. There's just so much here. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It is incredibly interesting. There is never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Live from New York, happy Tuesday. Alec Murdoch's plea deal with the federal government continues to cause more drama, and I'm wondering if it's finally sinking in with the U.S. Attorney's Office that there are no clean deals with Team Murdoch. They will continue to take and take and push and push. On Friday, U.S. Attorney Emily Limehouse asked Judge Richard Gergel for permission to file what's called a sir reply to Dick and Jim's reply to her response to their motion for an emergency seizure of Alec's assets. As Eric explains in today's episode, sir replies are rarely granted because judges don't want to encourage unending back and forth between the parties. On Monday, Judge Gergel granted the government's motion to file the sir reply. An unfiled copy of the reply was being circulated, so we were able to see the government's position on the additional arguments Dick and Jim made in their reply. As you'll hear in the show, we were all really surprised, pleasantly surprised, by how fierce the government's final response to Dick and Jim was whether or not the judge was going to allow it on the record. And let me say, it was about time. Also, on the show, we talk about South Carolina lawyers' efforts to take down a low country judge and not the low country judge you would think it would be. As a part of that discussion, I brought up the Bowen Turner case and how the prosecutor who helped facilitate Bowen's very cushy plea deal with Bowen's then-attorney, State Senator Brad Hutto, is again seeking to become a circuit court judge. Read the room, David Miller. We also share our pregame thoughts on Lifetime Murdoch Murders, the movie, before we were able to see it. We've since watched the movie and, well, it was a horrifying train wreck. 
on Thursday. Our premium members will get to participate in a discussion with Eric and me on what we thought about the movie and whatever it is they were trying to do with it. Looking ahead, I will be speaking to students at the College of Charleston on Thursday, October 26th at 4 p.m. In premium, Soak Up the Sun members can join virtually. Look in your weekly roundup email for the link to join this Thursday with EB and next Thursday, the 26th with the College of Charleston. And I'll be at the co-op on Sullivan's Island on October 27th, signing koozies and hyping pre-sales for my new book, Blood on Their Hands, on Friday, October 27th at 4 p.m. Now let's get unpacking. Cups up, guys. Cups up. Cups up. Mandy, your cup's up from New York, huh? Yeah, I'm in the Big Apple of New York City, and it's awesome. We have been busy, busy, busy meeting people, going to meetings and whatnot. We walked the Brooklyn Bridge yesterday. That was super fun. It was beautiful yesterday, and today is like... 50 degrees and raining. We're supposed to go to the New York City Food and Wine Festival, but I don't know how great that's going to be because of the weather. But it's funny, like Liz, you've said this, in cold weather places, people just kind of deal with it and like nobody complains and they just have a good time. So uh, I'm excited to be in New York. How are you guys? Uh, Eric, are you happy to be back? I am. You know, 11 days is a long time. It was, you know, you feel like you did everything you wanted to do, and it's nice to get back home, especially with what's going on in the world. But, it, you know, 11 days is pretty much as much as I can take being away from my dogs and normal routine. So I'm happy to be home. And it's always nice to, like, get back into your routine and you feel at home again. Liz, how are you doing? I'm good. I have to laugh, though, because one thing that early on when the Murdoch stuff happened in fall 2021 and all the like documentary companies were coming out and the reporters from other places like September 2021. And I just remember how condescending people were to you and to me about being like, we're in New York, we can fly you to New York, New York City. And that happened to me a couple of weeks ago when I was filming for, with a, a production company. And the executive producer said, this started to tell me, explain Wall Street, where he lived in Wall Street. And he was just like, we can, you know, bring you up here. And I'm like, he's like, have you ever been to New York City before? It's just like, New York City, little old me. Like, it just, it always cracks me up that they think that we've never, like, I've been to New York City more times than I could count. So yeah, it just cracked me up. And I always say when they try to dangle the carrot to me now and say, hey, we'll fly you up to record. I'm like, uh, no, if you want to record me, you can fly to my house. I have no interest in going to New York City right now. No, no. And I, I completely understand that, Eric. Right. Like, ex especially in the next few months, the weather is already deteriorating. Like, South Carolina is significantly better in the winter. And yeah, I mean, I can see the appeal of New York City. I can see the appeal, especially of Brooklyn. There's like tons of restaurants, tons of things to do. Like, the vibe is great. It's got a lot of energy. But I just love where we live. Like, I, I love the low country and I, I love the weather there. I love the people. I have a group of friends. But yeah, we ran into that a lot when people started approaching us it's a perfect three-day visit right but i don't want to live here three-day visit you know once twice a year it's just awesome right 
living here would it would just be too much. We have a lot to talk about. I wanted to start by talking about this, what's called a SIR reply that the government filed in USA versus Alec Murdoch. So one thing I just want to say before we start talking about this, I am super confused about what my opinion is with the federal government and how they've been handling the Murdoch cases, because I go from one extreme to the other in thinking that they're completely doing everything for the benefit of PMPAD and whatever this machine is that's behind Alec Murdoch, or they're actually doing their jobs and showing their might. And I'm telling you, like in the span of 24 hours, I've gone from that ex- those extremes. This sir reply seems to swing in the far opposite direction toward the they're showing their might. So Eric, do you want to explain what a SIR reply is in the first place? Sure. So you have them. Originally, there's the moving party who files a motion, and that would be Team Myrtle. They filed a motion to have the federal government seize the funds that are being held by the receiver, which ultimately is going to go to Mr. Tolleson, the special referee, under Judge Hall's order that he entered into in August. And so they file a motion. Ten days later, the government files a reply or a memorandum in opposition, and then the plaintiff gets to file, or the moving party, a reply. A sir reply is another reply to the the second reply of the moving party, and they're disfavored because the judges want there to be a cutoff. You can, you know, for every argument, there's a new argument. For every new argument, you can make another argument. And sooner or later, they want it to end. And what happened is in the reply, to the government's memorandum in opposition, Team Myrtle raised some issues that really caused Emily and the U.S. attorneys to say, look, Judge, can you grant us permission to file a SIR reply? You can't do it automatically. You got to get permission from the court, leave of court, it's called. Because what they argued in this SIR reply, and what they're saying is it was not a final order that uh, Judge Gergel entered into to say that there was going to be a final forfeiture of of Alex's money. It was a preliminary order. And they really chided Team Murdoch almost in a way that they were like, look, you guys don't even know the law. You don't even know what Judge Gurgle ruled. And you're basically misrepresenting to the court what's happening. And you're too early. This is not the time to do it. And what they're saying, what the government is saying is let the funds get marshaled to the special referee. And then if you want to make a claim or you want to object, there is a process to do that, but it's not in the federal court and Judge Gurgle is not the one to do it. But they have to get permission from the court to be able to file this SIR reply. But it was a full metal jacket SIR reply. Yeah. Mandy, what are your thoughts on what this says about the desperation that Dick and Jim and Alec are showing in trying to get those assets seized by the federal government? I almost am surprised at how many of their cards that they're showing. Like it can, you can see from this reply just how much in and from everything that they've done with this federal seizure, what their plot is, and it's very obvious that they have something else going on. And the government has said over and over, like, this is not normal. <laughs> Nobody else. And I loved in the server reply, they said basically, 
a defendant doesn't get to dictate anything about where they don't get any say in where it, who seizes what and how they do it. Like, excuse me, you're the defendant here. Like, let's remind you of who you are. But Liz, I'm the same way with you of like, I go back and forth with the federal government as to like what their deal is. But I also think that that's natural because I think that it shows that there is conflicting parties within the feds, which is what we've heard from sources all along that like some of them want to do the right thing. And there is still some sort of force probably controlled by Dick Harpootlian trying to do not the right thing. And I think that we can see that in their actions and their replies, but it is good to see that there are some feds that are like, hey, this is insane. You all are being ridiculous right now and you just need to sit down and be the defendant, not the guy who tells us where the assets go. It's crazy. Well, it was interesting because Emily also said in their filing in the SIR reply, oh, by the way, guys, you let your appeal time slip on Judge Hall's order approving the appointment of the special referee, Mr. Tullison. You had a right to appeal that and you let that appeal time slip. So it's like the third time in a row that it's been pointed out in a public filing that they have either let an appeal time slip, they didn't file the right affidavit, or they didn't follow Rule 240 in the state court appellate rules. And, uh, you know, it's starting to be a pattern that, you know, they're shooting from the hip without actually reading from the rule book first. So I thought that was very interesting. And by the way, I do have a question, which is, have they ever filed the affidavit? Have they ever cured the initial filing problem on the jury issues and appealing for a new trial. As, while I was gone, has there been any new filing to cure these defects? No, they're, they're not acknowledging it as a defect. I believe in one of their filings they mentioned, or maybe it wasn't a filing and maybe it was in an interview, that they're not, I just believe that they're not agreeing with the government that they have a filing anomaly. So I think in order to... Well, one of it was, Liz, one of it was from the appellate court themselves. Well, the true. appellate yeah. court actually wrote a letter and said, guys, you're not complying with Rule 240. So I would have figured they would have filed something to, with the appellate court. They have not as far as we know, no. As far as we know. I don't think so. But but you're right, Eric. Like, they made it's smoke and mirrors and fireworks and all of these distractions they do at the very beginning. And then when it comes down to you actually need to do this to go through and you actually need to, like, this is not how it works. They don't really show up for those things. And we've seen that, like, time and time again. And this is a perfect example. Like, they, they got, I think that they got... A majority of what they wanted, which was to ruin Becky Hill's reputation, which they've won the game in that so far. And they've won the game in just putting that, planting that seed of doubt in the public's eye of, did Alec get a fair trial? And like that was so dangerous in itself. And I hope that there's movement in that case in the next few weeks, because there's just a lot that needs to be cleared up there. It goes back to this moment in court when Dick Harpootlian tried to argue. I think it was during that one hearing where Alec, Russell, and Corey all appeared. And Dick was arguing, gosh, I forget the point. Or is it that he wanted to speak, oh, that they sped up the trial for Alec and he was blaming it on the state. And the state was actually like, that was you, you dummy. So it, it's, it just shows you because it goes back to us just saying constantly, like, we're, you know, 
especially in the early days of us reporting this, everyone telling us just how brilliant Dick is and how smart and on his toes and everything. And it just shows you, like you said, Eric, that they're shooting from the hip. I did uh, want to, and by the way, in regard to Becky Hill and the jury stuff, that's all to an audience of 18 people. Like we say the public, they wanted those headlines for the public. They want those headlines for the 18 jurors that were selected so that they can put talking points in their heads and they can let them know what storm they're up against and what way they want them to swim. Like you can either swim with the tide or you can swim against the tide, but here's where the tide is going. That's what those headlines are for. But I want to read from Emily Limehouse's uh, Sir reply because it really is fire. And she says the thing that I feel like I've been waiting for her to say for a while. She goes through the the arguments and she says, now the defendant is attempting to circumvent and undermine his knowing and voluntary waiver by effectively pleading this court to hear his appeal and allow him to contest the order entered by Judge Hall, approving the process for equitable allocation of the receivership assets. It's, I love this one. It's axiomatic that one quote cannot do indirectly that which he is prohibited from doing directly, which describes Dickinson's complete legal strategy strategy to begin with. Then she goes on, she says, just as the defendant does not get to decide which assets the government seizes or when, the defendant should not be allowed to conduct an end run around the state court receivership proceedings. Love that. She's calling it out. And then my favorite, favorite part is in the footnote. (laughs) It makes me giggle. For the first time in his reply, the defendant claims that his attorneys do not seek fees from the receivership assets during the claims process. But the defendant and his counsel have not moved to dismiss their appeal to the South Carolina Court of Appeals, which seeks to do just that. Claw back funds from the liquidation of the defendant's 401k accounts that he agreed to place and did place into the receivership estate for the express purpose of paying his lawyers. The defendant's counsel previously sought $160,000 in legal fees from the receivership assets. To the government's knowledge, the defendant's counsel have not notified the co-receivers that they are no longer seeking these funds. She took a bat to their um, she kneecapped them and it's beautiful. Them. Yeah. Where she said, she said, one, you forgot to appeal Judge Hall's order. So you don't get to do the appeal that you should have done to the South Carolina Court of Appeals in this federal court. And number two, it's a backdoor way of you trying to get fees that you're not going to get. They are on a number of fronts making arguments that are getting stuffed down their throat right back. And it's it's starting to look ridiculous. Starting to. But I feel like, and Eric, I do, I don't want to say I told you so. I love it when you do. So give it to me. <laughs> but like, uh, okay, so like a year ago, we talked a lot about Dick and Jim's strategy. And Liz and I said over and over, like, we don't see it. We don't see the sparkle that everybody else sees. We don't see the magic. And you said, wait for it. Do you think that like, do you think that they've gotten worse in their lawyer tactics or do you think that it's just all been exposed and now like the emperor has no clothes the latter you're right i do owe you an apology i really thought we were going to see more brilliance again it's sound and fury signifying nothing and i'm seeing worse and worse in the lawyering usually they you know they got phil barber who writes their briefs and he's a really good writer he's a brilliant guy but they're making frivolous arguments and i was wrong i'm not seeing good lawyering i'm actually seeing lawyering that's hurting their client's cause and that's really dangerous when lawyers start to do that they're 
alienating judges, they're alienating obviously the public, and they're alienating the bar. And you you just can't do that and try to be successful. What do you think of the people that say they're just doing their jobs? You can't give defense attorneys crap for just doing their jobs. No, that's wrong. They are they they gave Alex their job. They they've tried the case. They're appealing it. They are trying on the jury issues. That's all good fodder. That's what good defense lawyers do. But they, the arguments that they make on the Satterfields, for instance, that they wanted to vacate the confession of judgment after they gave it in under five months of negotiations, when they wanted to use it with Judge Lee, now they appeal that when they lose. Now in the footnote in one of the federal filings, they say, oh, we've made the decision. The Satterfields have got enough. You know, we're not going to let a judge do that. We're going to tell you that we believe the Satterfields have gotten enough money. I just think that they are making frivolous arguments on a number of fronts. I totally agree that they have a right to appeal the murder conviction. Totally agree on the jury issues. Those are serious issues. But all these other issues of trying to get to the receiver's money after they've agreed to the receivership, after they've waived the right to appeal on issues, and then they cloak it with, well, we just want to get the money because we want it to go to the right victims. That's not true. They want the money so that they could get attorney's fees and or get it to go to Alex, ultimately to Buster. They don't want a dime to go to the victims. You, if they would have done that, Alex would have already accepted judgments in a lot of the civil cases. He would have pled guilty already to the state court charges. None of the actions that Alex is doing is going to inure to the benefit of the victims. It's only for him. It's only for Dick and Jim. And it's only for Buster. They could give a rat's ass about the victims. Well, let's not forget that two of the victims are considered to be PMPED and Palmetto State Bank. So they do care about those victims, it seems to me anyway. And do you guys remember when you're little and like you would trade things with your friends and you'd be like, no backsies? I feel like we could do a complete list of every single time that the government or the plaintiff should have said no backsies to Dick and Jim. Because again, I don't understand this sort of why people keep resetting them to zero. I say it a hundred times, I think a month, but it feels like when you have shown yourself to be somebody who is not a fair dealer, then no one should deal with you. And yet I think, again, we just have people that are willing to either take them at their word. For instance, getting into this plea deal with them. I know it's expediency. Who are those people? Hold on, hold on, Liz. Who are these people? The, the, the Joe McCullough's who who are the Dick and Jim fan club? Tell me who. OK, don't get defensive. It's okay, not who's, the, the, who's in the Dick and fan okay. club. It's not a fan club. But let's talk about the 401k. I understand that that was a better deal for the victims, right? We can't get that money anyway. So we're going to have to come on. He wants the money. This is a good way. We get 40%. He gets 60. It's that's a good deal, right? But going into that deal in an honest way with them, it has backfired a little bit, right? I mean, granted, the the judge has said, no, you can't have that, that money, but they continue to come after it. Uh, the confession of judgment, you guys entered into that with a spirit of, I believe you. I believe that you, obviously, this is un would be unheard of for you to undo this. But he, of course, went ahead and is trying to undo it. So it's, it's that kind of thing. So it's not, I'm not trying to say like a naivete or anything like that, but I think we have enough historical information at this point to look back and say, so why is the 
federal government entering a plea deal in which they take the boilerplate plea deal and they alter it for him in a way that he can get this forfeiture rolling and in a way that he can later appeal whatever sentence they give him. Those are things that were not in Corey's. Corey does not have the ability in the same way that Alec did, the same way that Alec, it was written to Alec's plea deal anyway, to appeal certain aspects of his sentencing with the federal government. Not that I expect him to, but do you know what I'm saying? What you just said is that the person on the other side of the table, when you negotiate a deal with them, is going to break it the minute that he walks out of the room, that you're wasting your time making an agreement with somebody that has no intention of performing that agreement if he can go to another court and do an end around from the agreement he just agreed to. Right. So I guess maybe I'll alter what I was saying. I'm more concerned about the federal government entering into this deal with him. They should have known at the point that they entered into this deal that this was a man who does not stick to what he says he wants to do. He's just saying it for the moment to get what he wants. The part that bothers me the most about all of this is that every single time they do something that's like, like you said, no backsies. We all knew that as kids. Like you do something and you can't take it back. But every single time they do it and then they try to take it back, we we as taxpayers are paying for a lawyer to respond to it and we're paying for a whole system to drop what they're doing and respond to it and what other cases do they have to put to the side because of Dick and Jim's shenanigans I mean I would love to know the amount of hours and hours and hours with and I call them shenanigans because it is a shenanigan if you say if you do something and then try to take it back and say oh I didn't really mean that just kidding or or Dick's not even saying that. He's basically saying like, don't even call me out on what I tried to do before. I'm going to try to do this thing now and who's going to stop me? And I think the question now is really who is going to stop him from doing all of this nonsense because it just keeps going on and on and I am tired of it. I hope so. Well, let's hope that the closer we get to November 27th and Dick's going to show his cards, he's going to try to make a motion to continue or a motion to recuse Judge Newman. We'll get to see what Judge Newman thinks of it. He's the he's our only safe bet yet. Look, they're they're starting to attack Bentley Price. They're you know attacking Judge Hall. You know, the, the Judge Gurgle is going to get pulled into this somehow. Uh, right now, he's he they're in good stead with Judge Gurgle, but who knows if tomorrow is going to bring a different day? But they're going to attack. They attack. They're attackers. They, if they can't win with the prosecutors, they attack the judges. If they can't win with the judges, they attack the civil lawyers. It's just, it's everybody except me. I just keep thinking about like what ailment he comes up with before November 27th. We'll be right back. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. It has done wonders for our seasonal allergies. We recently started feeling the effects of spring. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, sinus congestion, and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have any allergies? It is time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Eric, you mentioned Judge Bentley Price a little bit ago, and so I want to talk about what's going on with him. So something quite unusual is happening in South Carolina, where the South Carolina bar has basically said that Judge Bentley Price, he's a newish judge. He was elected in, I believe, 2019, and he does a lot of work in the 14th Circuit, which obviously is Murdoch country, and he's been assigned to one of your cases, and he's assigned to one of the Mallory Beach cases. They have determined him to be, they want him disqualified as a judge, basically. They say he's not qualified. And he's up for election, obviously. So this, and it sounds serious. I mean, this sounds like it could really end up with him not getting reelected. And I didn't know if you have been hearing anything about what's going on there. All I've heard is that there have been some complaints about how he treats litigants and some lawyers. I've not had that experience with him. You know, I've not appeared before him other than in these cases. And, you know, there's been calls where he, you know, he's very cordial, very respectful. You know, there's a number of lawyers on the phone. He's a no-nonsense judge. And I think a lot of lawyers don't like that, to be honest with you. They don't like a judge that you can't say, hey, can I get a continuance? You know, I'm not ready. Can you give it to me? You know, let's do it next month. No, he. If you got a court hearing, you better be ready. He's going to do it, and you know, he he doesn't have friends to reward and enemies to punish. And I think it's alienated him to some of the lawyers that may have liked the system of where you could just go to a judge and say, "Hey, judge, look, I need you to do this for me." And it really is starting to be troublesome because it sounds like that we're starting to have lawyers trying to pick judges, and that's not. Not something that we should do. Starting to like the entire South Carolina system is based on lawyers choosing the judges, right? I mean, are we being real here or what? I have to be careful. <laughs> uh-huh. I have to be I careful. We do. We don't. Which reminds me, the whole Bowen Turner situation keeps getting worse, and we've we've known this for a while, but it got pretty. I don't know. It just keeps getting worse. And this week, we found out not only for a fact that, uh, what is the name of the judge in that Oh, David Miller. David Miller. Yes. Okay. So the prosecutor that made the deal for Bowen Turner, he has tried to be a judge for a while now. Like he has gone several rounds attempting to be a judge. So we knew when he made that deal with Brad Hutto that he had his eye on the prize of being a judge in the long term. But I didn't think that he would have the gall to 
keep going and still try to be a judge after he was exposed before the whole world is making this horrific deal that endangered women and girls all over South Carolina. And everybody was very, very, very angry about it. I would say I haven't seen people that angry about one case in a very long time and just utterly disgusted in the system. That case just exemplified so many things that was wrong. And then we let a little bit of time pass. And what does he do? He's trying again. And what does the South Carolina bar do? They say qualified. He's good to go. And he has to do several more steps granted to become a judge. But still, I think that that speaks volumes for the state that our system is in right now. And again, who is on that board that makes that ultimate decision? Todd Rutherford. And that is a huge problem. So I guess the question would be, has he done? Well, first of all, Mindy, I think what you're saying is exactly the issue, which is like, you can't believe he has the gall to do it when all we have in South Carolina is big gall. I mean, these guys have big galls on them. (laughs) They have giant big gall energy, (laughs) giant galls, (laughs) galls of fury. They are uh, leading with their galls. So it's of course he is. Of course, he's trying to be a judge. But additionally, you mentioned Todd Rutherford. And there is a case where we talked about it in True Sunlight podcast that the I I forget the name of the guy, I think his last name was Lopez Romero. Uh, He was a prisoner in McCormick and he was allowed to go 12 years early. He had kidnapped two women, held them at gunpoint, and he had shot another guy several several times. And then he had beaten up some deputies and uh, he was serving a 30 year sentence. He was allowed to go early because of a deal struck by Todd Rutherford and an, a judge. And it was behind closed doors. The Post and Courier looked into it. They were trying to figure out was this warranted and it didn't seem necessarily to be warranted. I got a tip that, um, and I have not verified this yet fully, but that this particular guy, David Miller, was the one of the prosecutors who helped Todd Rutherford come up with this deal. So if that does turn out to be the case, um, now we have another questionable, uh, you know, possible, possibly questionable act, uh, interaction between a prosecutor and and Todd Rutherford, who is very powerful in the Judicial Merit Selection Committee. Yes. Didn't you see that one of the legislatures introduced a bill that said that somebody like Todd cannot sit on the Judicial Merit Commission because he does plea deals or he has criminal defense deals in front of these same judges that he's appointing. And he felt it's just totally inappropriate. And Todd came out and said, every judge that we've appointed, nobody's ever been accused of bribes or doing anything inappropriate like that judge in, uh, where was it? Not in Kansas, but somewhere where she was texting with the bailiff that was just horrendous. Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. He was saying, look, everything's fine. The judges that I pick or that we pick, nobody's, nobody's getting bribing. So it's all good. What a weird place to go with that. So who said anything about bribing, Todd? Right. Like, what? why is he bringing up bribing? What, hmm. Right. Interesting. And also, he basically said no one has been held accountable in South Carolina, so everything's fine, versus we've exposed problem after problem. And his answer was just 
it it struck straight through me as somebody who's just very, very bothered by narcissists and manipulators, and I can really point it out, and it makes my stomach hurt. And what he was doing was gaslighting. He was saying, like, you all say that there's a problem, but really there's no problem, and I'll show you why there's no problem, and you have the illusion that there's a problem here, and you all have been tricked. We're fine over here. No problems. And it was just very insulting, and I think he said something about like no one can pinpoint a single problem with the way that we select judges here and it's like Carmen Bolin let's let's start pinpointing the problems you all of the uh, Gerard Price let's talk about that like how many problems have we all pinpointed and the Post and Courier got a shout out to them because they've done a great job continuing to expose the corruption in our judicial system and I am just again the gall the big galls on <laughs> These guys, it's just horrible and disgusting. Look, I I understand, Liz and Mandy, like we probably have 3,000 ODC complaints that are probably pending. I don't know the number, but I would say it's in the thousands of lawyers where clients or judges or whoever opposing counsel have complained. So I get it that there's a couple thousand pending cases. It takes a lot of time for them to go through. But I don't think we have that number of judges' complaints, of judicial complaints. So, for instance, Carmen Mullen, those complaints have been pending for well over a year against Judge Mullen, the stuff that David Pascoe and I raised. And then the new thing that came out when we talked about what happened in 2017 in her neighborhood and all. How long does it take for judicial complaints to be resolved? I get it on the ODC for lawyers because there's so many, but there can't be but what, 14 maybe pending, 13, 10 judicial complaints. It's not like that there's a lot of judicial complaints. What, What is going on with the complaints that were made against Judge Mullen? You mentioned her name, Mandy. Let's be clear here. So when we say that there's not a lot of judicial complaints, it is very difficult for any attorney in South Carolina to file a complaint against a judge. And we we talked about this when it came to Judge Casey Manning, because there were it was a small group of women who filed a complaints against him, and it ended up affecting their careers. They had legitimate complaints about how he conducted himself during one of their cases. There, there were three women who worked for the prosecution, and it ended up where these women, I don't even think, I think two of them might not even work in this state anymore. They had to leave. And it came down to uh, them getting bullied because Judge Casey Manning in retribution filed complaints against them, knowing that they had issues with how he conducted himself. And then going back to the Bell and Turner case, one thing that we had discovered when we were looking through a Judge Markley Dennis's schedule was that he was rarely, and when I say rarely, there had been like a 10-year gap of when he was holding court in Orangeburg. But the week that they decided to push through that plea deal with Bowen Turner, the secret one, the one where they closed the door and wouldn't let anyone from the public in, the one where they didn't tell the victims what was going on, was the week that Judge Markley Dennis was on the bench there. So it was very clear to me that how did it, it come to bear that he got assigned to that court during that week? Or was he assigned and that's the week they decided to take advantage of it? But these are questions that need to be asked. And additionally, I think the only thing that's going to solve the problem for attorneys in South Carolina who feel completely and needlessly, you know, guilt by association, I guess, like th- that they're being 
being uh, maligned as a result of the Murdoch stuff, unfairly maligned, is there needs to be more transparency in both the ODC and the Supreme Court when looking into judicial complaints. And that's the only thing that's going to solve it. But the problem is that we have a bar association. And and going back to Judge Bentley Price, it's completely not transparent how, and this isn't to say, like, I'm not saying that there aren't valid concerns about Judge Price, but I don't know them yet. And I certainly know that what I've heard so far is not worse than what Judge Carmen Mullen is accused of doing when it came to trying to get that man arrested. So if the Bar Association is willing to take part in some sort of campaign against a judge to get him removed because of perhaps some special interest in the matter, then how, how can we even, I mean, we can't trust the Bar Association. So any lawyer who's been complaining about, oh my God, you guys are making it so hard for us now because you won't drop the Murdoch stuff, your own Bar Association is to blame for it, in my opinion. And it, the Bar Association would be better served by putting that energy into having a a better process for the ODC or advocating for more transparency in that regard, right? Instead, they have this very opaque system and it's an anonymous system. So 25%, apparently, according to the post Carrier, about 25% of the people they ask about Judge Bentley Price, if 25% say that they don't think he's qualified, then then they, they are able to say he's not qualified. They don't say how many people they asked and they don't say who they asked and they have not published the letters that we, we have no idea what it is he's accused of. The only things I've heard are are like what you said, except I've heard that he does grant favors to friends of, you know, defense attorneys who are his friends, which again, duh, like we said it in our episode, like it's all the judges. What are you talking about? Is there a judge out there that doesn't look favorably upon their friends because they know them versus a lawyer they don't know? At at any rate, I'm I'm greatly disturbed because if he's specifically being removed or they're trying to get him out of there for some reason regarding a specific case that he's working on, then we've got major problems in South Carolina that, that need to be looked at, which again, duh. All of my friends who are lawyers have brought up examples of different complaints against like frivolous complaints against them and how annoying or somebody that they knew and how annoying it is. What I don't understand about this system is how they're they're not able to separate it out and how they are not able to like obviously do judicial complaints and serious ones like the ones that have been launched against Carmen Mullen, that should be at the top. And I don't care about the 200 of like random clients who weren't happy with their whatever. I care about the judge who is sentencing people literally and deciding whether or not they get their freedom taken away. I want to know whether she is corrupt or not. And I want the system to look into that immediately. I don't care about all of the hundreds of other complaints that they've probably put before them and said, oh, we're just so overwhelmed. Like, it's just, and again, transparency would help with all of this because let's see what you're talking about. (laughs) Let's see the type of complaints that you guys are dealing with and why you don't have a better system to separate the serious complaints from the frivolous ones and at least be able to expedite the process with the very serious complaints launched against judges, because that is what is rotting our system to its core right now. I'm going to see if I could say this in a way that I don't get myself in real trouble. But let's say about 20 years ago, there was a judge, and I'm not going to say it was a state or a federal court judge, that the lawyers were very displeased about this judge's temperament, not so much about the judge's intellect, but the judge's temperament. And What the lawyers figured out, and when I say the lawyers, the power lawyers figured out is, let's get the lawyer up on the appellate court. And so they got the judge up on an appellate court. 
And I'm not going to say whether it was a state or federal court. That's wrong. So they, they, they lobbied to get the judge up on an appellate court so that he would get away from the trial court where all those power lawyers appeared before that judge and didn't like the results they were getting. So they put the judge up on the appellate court. That seems to me to be a real problem. Yeah, and I understand the problem with, I understand people will say, well, lawyers do need it to be a part of the process because we know how the judicial system works and blah, blah, blah. But they shouldn't be the only ones picking our judges, and especially the ones with so much power and so much swing in our state. I mean, we need somebody looking out for the common person to be having a say in who the judges are in our state. And it's just, it's getting further and further out of control. And the more that's exposed, the more it scares me of how wrong the whole thing is. Yeah, when the minority leader of the House sits on the Judicial Merits Committee, I mean, you're talking about a very powerful person. And now all of a sudden you're starting to hear his name on every single controversial case over the last couple of years. It's not by coincidence. Right. And and they say that these guys are just brought into cases often just to hold their swing. Like they don't really do much as far as lawyers. And that's wrong, too. That's using your position of power to make money. Like they're making tons of money, I'm sure, off of these cases where they're getting pulled into. And it's like if you didn't have that position that you were selecting judges, would people actually pay you to be a lawyer in these cases? I don't know. And that's where it's wrong. It's a really good point. And I, I just want to say like one final point here if, and we, we can move on. But I love how people, especially lawyers, will tell us like you want a direct vote by the, the people to get judges. It's such a that's a much worse system. And it's like it's not. I know. And it's like we're talking about apples and apples here. We're talking about a bad system and a bad system because judges are always going to be subject to special interests. They just are. We see what's going on with the Supreme Court. There's always going to be outside interest vying for their favor, right? It's up to the system itself to be, to have a firm sort of gate in place to protect that and to help. There has to be something that holds judges accountable. But right now, the only accountability we have is instead of the people's vote, we have a select group of of guys who are basically voting and and it benefits them professionally very directly, in my opinion. And we'll be right back. Now for the fun part of that episode, we're going to talk about Murdoch Murders, colon, and I put emphasis on the colon, the movie. Are you guys excited? It's coming out tonight. (laughs) Going to get my popcorn. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm going to get my popcorn in my jammies. And I like like horribly bad movies. Sometimes it's a good time for me when things are like kind of bad. I get really angry like they're presented as there's something else. I think this is just going to be purely bad. So I I mean, it is gross, but it's going to be on a long line of and it's already in a long line of gross things that we've seen with the Murdoch story. But this is our first movie, so cups up to that. Hopefully our last. <laughs> uh, I'm just shocked that it was able to be 
you know, scripted and written and then directed and recorded and then edited basically in like five months. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Usually something like this, you know, takes a year or two and it just seems like it got in the hopper and it was spit out very quickly. In the middle of the writer's strike too, like most other production agency, most other movies, everything has been in a complete halt and we know for a fact that they were looking around for help in june because they emailed a few of us like hey can you help us we're writing this lifetime murdoch script and that was in june so like they it is lightning it's faster than becky's book yeah it's faster than becky's book and i don't like bad movies mandy so this is going to be difficult to watch but a friend of mine has connections at lifetime and she sent me a message the other day and said that mandy and you are going to need to be wearing adult diapers when you watch this because you're going to pee your pants laughing. So I I feel... Is it going to be cheesy? You feel like it's going to be cheesy? How is it not? I, I Before I we got on this call to record the episode, I was on the phone with a source of mine. He was one of my OG sources, one of Mandy's and my OG sources in the Murdoch case. And he's a funny guy. And I sent him the, one of the trailers for the Murdoch Murders movie and just listened to him like absorb because he, he didn't know. He hadn't heard of this. He's like so outside the loop of, of this stuff and it, it disgusts him. But he knew Alec personally and he knew Randolph very well. And so just listening to his reaction. I mean, he's just, it was like F words, like, and just laughing and like, you've got to be effing kidding me. And it, it's, it was funny. So I think we're all going to get, it's just so weird to see Alec being played by Bill Pullman, who I've said this before, but he, Poor, Bill, poor Pullman. Bill Pullman. And like, poor me. I, like, ever since, like, while you were sleeping <laughs> in the last seduction, like, I really, like, I have a, I had a really good crush on him. I looked him up today and I, I can't believe he's almost 70, which is even funnier that he's playing Alec at almost 70, by the way. Alec is only, was only 53, right, when this happened, so... <laughs> the guy they have playing Jim Griffin is like 80. <laughs> he's really Who, old. Who's, who's going to play you guys? Who's going to play you guys? Oh, I don't think we're in it. Hopefully not. We're out. <laughs> Yeah, thank God. I hope we're out of it. How do, they, how, do they, how do they write this story without you, Mandy? And how do they write the Satterfield case without me? It just right. It, not not trying to say Is that it I, about that. You know, there is a big Satterfield portion. You sent me something that you said, you know, I'm sure Debbie Barbieri is going to hit the roof because evidently there's a scene where Alex and Corey are together and they come up with the scheme where Alex says, you know, I'm going to form this bank account. You're going to give me this money. And it's going to go in. And it's like everything that we knew probably happened. And they're saying it. And I'm sure Debbie Barbieri is going to hit the roof. Who played Corey? Right. He in the it looks like they are saying Corey was like in on the forge thing deep in, in it. like a big deep. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm surprised with the fear of lawsuits and things and the way that I know all of these big companies operate, especially with guys like Corey Fleming, that they would go there with him. And yeah, they conspired together with Forge. And it was funny. I saw one review basically saying that like everyone knows that the Mallory Beach case was the beginning of the end of the Murdochs and that that led to the Satterfield case being exposed and all of that. And it's like, well, who, how are you guys going to say that that, 
<laughs> there had to have been a person. Yeah, there had to have been a redhead. Some girl with red hair. Wait a minute. And Mark Tinsley is, you know, the real engine behind the Murdoch, like it going the distance, like in my opinion. So, oh, yeah, totally. No, no, no. I'm not saying that I don't want to be a part of this, but I, it, the the review that I saw didn't have anything about Mark Tinsley or anything. It just said like it just kind of skipped over everything and acted like the boat crash literally just unsurfaced all of these papers into the air. <laughs> <laughs> like magic that was like here's this case and here's that case and it's like no it, it took like a lot of people and a lot of struggle yes it took a lot of people not it just two people it, it took, it took, a, a, it lot took people. a lot of different right, right. Because there's a, I mean, I think there's a lot with, especially with Mark that, you know, the public doesn't know that what he did behind the scenes and and with the Satterfield case, Eric. So there was a conversation he knew before us, Mandy, about what happened with Gloria and, you know, had been talking to people. So I just don't want it to come off like we're, we're complaining about not being in the movie, you know? No, I'm not. Okay. Because I, I really, I don't... truly don't think that's how we feel. We're not. I'm not. And that would be weird too. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to see that. <laughs> I don't want to see myself being portrayed in any way. I would rather just be. Unless it's good. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to see myself being portrayed by an 85 year old actor. Okay. Yeah. You know, if you're not gonna, on Lifetime. Not on Lifetime. You know, if you're going to portray me, get, you know, do somebody that's like 28 years old. I'd, I'd get really excited. <laughs> that would be good, Eric. I, I could see that. But yeah, no, not on Lifetime. I, but I think the ultimate... And not in a movie that's been <laughs> written in like two months. I mean, this is a very complicated story. And it's going to be really funny to see them like quickly weaving all of this mess together in, in a way that makes sense. So yeah, it's going to be very bad. I think it's going to be rewarding though, because I think that it, from just from the, like, the previews, it looks like they are not holding back on making Alec be like super Alec-y. Like there's like, th do you guys remember the line where he says to somebody like, I promise you, you know, we have money or something. I guess he's saying it to Maggie or I promise you we're, we're good. And that is so Alec that I promise you statement. Like, so at least, I at least know that they listen to the jailhouse calls to, to really craft their character. <laughs> Do they though? I don't know. He looks really evil and terrible. There was one quote. Yeah. He does. There was one quote where that I was giggling about that was like, it was just something Ellick would never say. He said to Paul, like, what about legacy? Your legacy is just financial ruin and a dead girl. And it's like, Ellick would have never said that. He just, I don't think. And, no, and but Alec they did said, worry like, about legacy. He does worry about it, but I don't think he would say yeah. things like that out loud. The way that it was phrased, and he said something like, you and Buster were given everything, and I worked so hard to, and it's like, I don't. I don't think that <laughs> that's like the least true part of everything. Like, yes, they were given everything, but so is Alec. I mean, and there's been things that just with the previews, you see, because we know the story, like the back of our hand, that it's just frustrating to see like Maggie wasn't at the hospital. Why is Maggie? They did a really good job of recreating the scene at the hospital with Paul and all of the 
whatnot, but Maggie wasn't there. And that's a big part of like the family dynamics is that Maggie was always like silent about all that. Like she knew things were going on, but she kept her distance enough while Randolph and Alex were going around doing their things. Like Maggie wasn't there. And I think that that's important, but I, I'm very interested. And I think it's funny that an interesting, I was thinking about this, like two years ago, two falls ago, we were in the thick of it and it was things Eric wasn't covering things right and left we were talking to each other like every day and it was just constant news chaos blah 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 figuring out this story and now here we are two years later and it's already a movie I know but yeah I mean it was just it's crazy that we've already I'm I'm just shocked it's already a movie I don't think Alex is a guy that cares about legacy from my my standpoint. I think he just cares about money. He's the kind of guy that, you know, he he was born on third base, round in third base and think he hits a triple to get there. He never did. For him, it was always about money and power, not so much about legacy. A legacy guy is a guy like Mark Tinsley. You know, he, he and I have been born in the parking lot. You know, we weren't even in the dugout. And Mark, Mark is about legacy. Mark is about, you know, what has he done for his clients? And he's going to have a reputation of being a gunslinger and really doing just tremendous good work for his client. But I don't see Alex being that kind of guy of a legacy guy. I just see him as money was the most important thing in his life and power and how he was going to wield it. He didn't care whether people thought he was a good guy or a bad guy, I guess. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think, Eric, that's so right. Like, that's such a good perspective because, and I almost now, as you're talking, I'm questioning, does Randolph care? Did Randolph even care about his legacy? Because I do, I can see what you're saying that I think that Alec is the kind of guy who accept like there was no other way than he's a Murdoch and that means something and there isn't it isn't really about protecting the name so much as like that name is indestructible to him right it's not something and we're going to use it how am I going to use it it? how can I use my name right and I think a lot of what Ellie did was like unspoken you know what I mean with I don't think he said out loud to Paul like this is our legacy a lot of like his biggest power moves like with with Shelly Smith and saying like hey I know who your boss is by the way he doesn't say out loud you know who I am and you know the legacy that my family has and the power that we I feel like a lot of his power was just completely unspoken so I think that that's gonna be interesting to see and kind of funny to see that portrayed in the movie because we just know that that's not really how he worked. He was just not, he wasn't quiet by any means, but he didn't verbalize a lot of the things that I think that they are saying that he verbalized. He used fear like the same way that that a mafia guy would walk in the room and not have to say, hey, if you screw with me, I'll kill you. Just his mere presence had you unnerved. Same way with Alex. I'm a Murdoch. I'm here. You know who I am. You know who my family is. Do not cross me. He didn't have to say, don't cross me. This is what's going to happen. Everybody knows it. Right. So is Dick Harputlian not in the movie? Is it just Jim is the only lawyer that he had or what? We're calling him Jim Dick. (laughs) Uh, Because he looks like a combination of both of them. That's funny. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, apparently, they couldn't get two lawyers. <laughs> so they could only get one. And the budget lo- must not have been big. <laughs> it looks like uh, Dick Harputlian is not in it. 
and I don't see a character for Buster either, which again, I don't know if they were like certain about, there is always the potential of lawsuits and especially, and I don't know if they just didn't portray some people because they didn't want to be sued and so they just left them out. I have no idea, but I'm interested in how, it's very shocking to me that they would do an entire story without the only living Murdoch as a character. The only living of that family, living and free, I guess. The only living son of Alec Murdoch, how could they not portray him as a character? That just all seems very weird to me. Especially like if they're doing courtroom scenes, like one of the most significant things during that trial was that Buster sat behind him every day. So that's, you know, right. it wouldn't have been hard to hire somebody and dye their hair red, guys. Like you could have, I mean, anyone probably would have done it for a little bit of money. So, so yeah, it must have been something. Um, maybe they put, I don't know, because like, yeah, maybe they did. Can they do that? Can they say no? Can they say you can't portray me in a movie? Like, I mean, that doesn't seem like something you can do. I don't know, and I'm really interested in if there is any lawsuits coming out of this, and I'll just leave it at that because I've kind of heard some chatter about people who are had no idea that they were being portrayed, and at least one person was very shocked to hear that her character was in the movie, and we might have an update on that next week. And on that note... I do want to say that I'm really excited Thursday night at 7 p.m. appearing with Mandy at happy hour. I'm, it's some of my best times when I do it with Liz, and now I'm doing it with Mandy. I'm really, really excited about it. I think it's going to be interesting. And so all you premium members out there, listen, because we're going to have a blast and we're going to give you a rock solid hour. Yeah, and we'll do a post what we thought of the movie situation because this is all recorded before the movie. Yeah, this show is going to come out after the movie, so that'll be pretty cool. Yeah. We'll see how close we are. Awesome. Do we want to do Cups Down? Yep. Cups Down, everybody. Great show. Cups Down, guys. Cups Down. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. (laughs) 